This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Unskippable F-20 Encounters. The London Eye. Dream Sequences. And Keeping America Imperial. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And look at that, Robin, the miniature. Why, it's a, is it a manticore or a boulette or a manta boulette? Who can say? <laughs> the dice, they're all shiny. They've got the fun colors and the deeply incised numbers. The Dorito, oh, I've, someone has sprung for the spicy nacho Doritos. Robin, we must be creating a heck of an F-20 encounter today in the gaming hut. Uh, of course, Peter Frampton is, as always, perfect and wonderful. No need to improve him in this opening narration. But Peter Frampton can stand for the rule set, but the rest is all table setting, and that's what we do before the game and during the game, I think, right? Right. Well, I, I feel after that, I feel like junking the whole actual topic of the segment and just doing hybrid bullet variants. But <laughs> yes, we're here well, to talk about someday. F-20 encounters and how to create them so that the players don't want to skip them. And that's also a whole question in old school versus new school D&D, as it used to be uh, the idea that part of the job of the players was to know which fights to skip. And was to run this, away, yeah. Yeah, and also the sleep spell is there to fulfill an important game function of a game where you're all, you know, doing a marathon eight-hour session and the wandering monster table tells you you've got to have a, a bunch of, uh, you know, centipede men show up and uh, 
Why would we don't want to bother with the centipede men? Let's just put them to sleep and keep going. Put them to sleep and kill them and keep going. I believe Robin is the important <laughs> st- stage that you missed in that story. Uh, isn't there something about sleep where you're not allowed to? Uh, if you try and kill them, they wake up. Anyway, that's well, yet another. You, you get a free attack on them, and they're just centipede men. The larger point being, yes, the larger point being, many encounters are meant to be scrub encounters, or right. are meant to terrify the bejesus out of you, so that you. I guess I should say the Ba'odin out of you so that you don't try <laughs> the to Cuthbert. do the Cuthbert, uh, so that you don't try to uh, slog into something that you'll be slaughtered by. Right. But nowadays, I think we, especially now uh, that I think the GM is supposed to more prep and lovingly craft every single encounter. Uh, and also people have less time. There's the percentage of the player base who are, Spending eight hours in the rec room, going up six levels, has has dropped. I would I would think right in a, in a day when every movie was a musical, some songs could just be songs. Now, if you're going to put music in a movie, there's got to be a big number, right? I think that's the parallel we're talking, right? And and sometimes players still want to go. Oh well, can't we just skip this one? Can we go around this? Uh, but we're going to assume, for the sake of this discussion, that you want to make sure. That at least this, let's say you have an encounter and you want it to happen. You've bought all the lava pieces to go with your miniature setup. Because after all, you know, getting into fights, that's a big part of F20. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that the players don't go, oh, grind. Um, now, there's mechanical fixes that we could acknowledge. For example, if any F20 game can stand having the uh, 13th Age Escalation die mechanic stolen wholesale <laughs> and ported into it. So that the fight gets more exciting and fun as you go along rather than ending in a slow tapering off. But what do we do to make, you know, you've decided, you know, the encounter in the lava is the one you've prepped and you want to make sure that the players uh, don't circumvent it. How do we make sure that they uh, do that, Ken? And uh, contrary to form, since I've jumped in a little early here, you get to start off. Giving us the obvious answer. Give us the obvious answer. All right. Uh, the first obvious answer is, I believe, the one that I alluded to in uh, the opener, which is you present them with an exotic, unusual, or interesting foe. So even if it's a more dangerous foe, like you say, it's a Hydra, but it's got a Medusa head, players will be interested in that, even if their characters will be diving for cover and uh, turning their mirrored shields around in a big old hurry. So the degree to which the encounter is just interesting to conceptualize for the players, as opposed to for you, the GM, is, I think, the first you know, stage. It's, you know, that's the pitch meeting. That's the thing you sell them on the sizzle of the encounter. And it has to sound fun and sexy. I I would say, um, as as your opening gun. Now, obviously there's exceptions to all of that, which we'll get to, but that's my, my first bid is the monster has to sound really cool. Right. And this is why companies keep making monster manuals. Uh, and the reason for that is because people keep buying monster manuals Mm -hmm. because a new, original cool adversary cool looking adversary is indeed a big lure so and absolutely uh, top of the line first point to make uh, and then the the second obvious point is to give them a goal that they will achieve aside from the standard experience points and treasure Right. It's sort of, well, first of all, in some versions of Wandering Monsters, they don't have any treasure. And uh, the whole point is, you know, running into a wandering monster is is a punishment. Uh, I would suggest that like a lot of things designed to get the players to uh, act in a certain way by giving them the stick instead of the carrot, that only goes so far. 
And uh, what you want to do is uh, if you have your, you know, signal encounter of the thing, have a big reason, a reward on top of the usual for them to go out and have a, uh, that's the one, of course, where the uh, a prisoner is. And there's, so you see someone suspended in a cage up, up there who you want to rescue or the person you've been assigned to rescue. If there's a reason for you to be in the dungeon and or other adventure environment other than just poking around uh, looking for fights and treasure. So that can be a goal within the scenario, right? You have to cross this bridge to get to the rest of the encounters and look, there's uh, creatures on the bridge and uh, that gives them a reason to want to do it. If you hit that too hard though, right? You want to make sure that this is not, you have to have this fight before you get to the fun fight. That's when they're going to want to skip it. Mm -hmm. And if you take away all of their ability to skip it, they're going to, you know, grind on, but it's going to feel like a grind to them. And that's right. not your objective. And they'll be mad at you, which you also don't want. And I think that your note about the bridge is sort of leads us ineluctably into the other thing that you can do uh, to make the fight interesting and, uh, and, and tempting and fun is to provide a tactical challenge that the players can see right away so that it's more interesting than just compare hit dice, compare, uh, to hit numbers, well, it looks like we got a 78% chance of winning. Let's grind this out for five rounds, then we're done. Make it weird. Make it fun. Let the kobolds be clinging to the ceiling and shooting at them with crossbows because of their weird gecko feet. Put that uh, lava that you've uh, carefully uh, gotten out of the miniature store around so the the fight is channelized. And the interesting thing is, do you have, you know, a ring of cold that could let you, you know, break through that channel and hit them in the flank? Have your foes tactically disposed to encourage tactical redisposition on the part of the player characters and reward that tactical redisposition as they do it. I mean, you should be doing that anyway, but if you've got a fight that is meant to be tactically interesting, you should absolutely be giving the player characters brief tactical bonuses for doing something other than straight ahead charge, which is generally, you know, the sort of default and uh, something you're trying to get out of, right? Right, which means signaling that right away. Mm -hmm. If the fun thing about that is the lava, and we already noted that you bought a bunch of, you know, lava tiles, don't have it pop up in the middle of an otherwise quotidian looking encounter to spice it up during round three, because by that time the crests have already fallen around the table and uh, uh, oh, suddenly now something interesting is happening, but have the lava appear right at the beginning. And I think you also want to set it up so that they are thinking, oh, wait, I could throw the centipede men into the lava rather than just here's another way they're going to kill us. So mm -hmm. the, cool tactical thing, make sure they see it up front and uh, you want them to have the fun of thinking of it. You don't tell them, oh, look, here's the lava that you could throw them into. Now, it's probably not anybody's first lava radio, mm -hmm. but still find a way to sort of the initial encounter, the moment when you first describe it to them, make sure you throw in the thing that is interesting. Don't wait until round three, because by that time they've already decided possibly that it's a, a, a boring fight. Give him the hook right away. And the mention of lava and the mention of round three brings me to another thing. Make the fight dynamic. So you don't have to have the lava on the table just yet, as long as the players see from the instant that there's a fumarole in the middle of the cave and it's shooting gobbets of lava out. And you tell the dwarf, oh, you know, as a dwarf, you think that that fumarole could literally erupt at any time. It's probably been angered by all of the centipede men walking on it. And then 
you know that, oh, we have a kind of a ticking clock to get through this fight, which makes it more interesting. But B, at some point, it is going to start spewing lava with maybe tactical uncertainty involved. So maybe you randomly roll where the lava goes, or maybe you've figured out where the lava will run because there's a channel in the floor of the cave. But either way, if the environment is dynamic and shifting, if you're on that bridge and then the bridge starts to come apart because uh, there's too many heavily armored people running on it, that changes the game and makes it more interesting than just, oh, we have to cross the bridge so that we can get to the other half of the fight. It's like, oh, the bridge is going to start you know, peeling off uh, ropes and maybe going to fall into the crevasse. A, there may be monsters in the crevasse, but B, you know, we don't want to burn out our ring of feather fall already. Here's the situation. What do we do about it? And so you keep changing the game. And I think that this is where you can go back to that first thing of a reward for finishing the fight. That is, it may just be, you know, you know that uh, at the end of this cavern is the the big old treasure dome, or you know that if you can kill that necromancer or stop him, you can get the map to the rest of the dungeon off of his body, or, you know, something like that is going to happen that then encourages you to play this game tactically and hurry up because you're like, well, at some point that necromancer is going to teleport out of here and leave you uh, sucking lava. So you have to think, how do we get a guy down there as fast as possible? How do we send the ranger ahead at full speed? How do we open a gate? How do we do this, that, or the other thing? How do we jump onto one of those giant bats and fly it towards the, the bad guy? How do we change the battlefield up? And if you are signaling the battlefield can be changed, tactics do pay off. And this is a, there's a story reason to go after this guy as opposed to just, well, he's got the pointiest hat on the battlefield. Then... I think all of that will get the players thinking tactically and thinking in terms of uh, making a combat fluid as opposed to making a combat just a bunch of numbers to, to roll down. And in addition to tactical foreshadowing, there's, of course, emotional foreshadowing that you give the players in advance a reason to want to come after this particular group of enemies. So you've established, you know, in the village that they set your favorite tavern on fire. You've uh, had a previous encounter where one of their henchmen uh, told them they're coming for you and they're coming for your village. All, you know, all of the classic pulp ways of making people uh, hate a villain have some of those in action so that when you finally meet the person who's responsible for all these terrible things, you really want to get them. You're not going to think for a moment about skipping the encounter because this is the reason you're there. Now, there's always the classic problem in F20 that you can't have the peaceable encounter where they say mean things to you and then later you get to kill them because, of course, F20, you can attack somebody at any time and it's a big rigmarole full of uh, annoying uh, GM techniques to protect that character until the big fight. But there's all sorts of other ways that you can signal that this is the person who they really want to get, who's done some terrible things and uh, deserves the uh, thrashing that you're there to meet out. And another thing that you can do, and this sort of uh, goes from the general to the specific at your table, tailor the combat a little bit to the players and or the player characters, also the players, but especially the characters. So if you've got an elven archer in the game in your party, make sure that there's something rewarding to do at long range or some way that she has to stand off the bad guy, the other long range bad guy. Uh, current D&D sort of does this and uh, fourth edition absolutely did this. 
13th age does it with sort of the roles of the, of the monsters. Some are, are, are called archers because they're at long distance. Some are casters, some are bricks, etc. Be thinking about that as well. You know, just don't say, well, uh, 10 orcs, that's a fight. Think, well, what if it's seven orcs and a cave troll and one of those gecko kobolds with a repeating crossbow that, you know, same number of hit points, but it makes the, the fight more interesting because now the paladin's like, I have to go after that cave troll. It's everything I've ever wanted to stab. Everyone else has to sort of screen against the orcs. And then the elven archer gets to play uh parkour footsie with the gecko kobold. And that is now suddenly a thing where every individual character is engaged ideally. And one of the orc screen can be the guy who mouthed off to you in the, in the uh, tavern, as you suggest. So it, you can mix and match all of these, but I think tailoring at least the, the, the big encounters, the, the, the high dollar encounters to the player group is, is very good. And it won't even break verisimilitude as long as it isn't every single time that there's one archer, one brick and uh, three um, uh, mooks. And it's like, ah, we've done this fight a million times you know, change it up, right? It, it, every, every hockey game is interesting, even though you're playing the same, you know, in theory positions, because every player has different skills and abilities that come into play. Same thing should be happening. You know, every one of your fights should be as interesting as a hockey game or a football game, even though by the numbers, it's, well, it's, you know, it's just another, another combat, but right. it's something different is going on. Right. Uh, another thing that can be different is, set up a non-combat action that one of the combatants can take at some point. So there's a big red button behind the necromancer. There's, you know, there, there's a layer of uh, precarious ice up ahead that you can, if you scramble up, that you could drop it on uh, these people. There's a, you know, there's the proverbial uh, barrels full of uh, Greek fire. There's all sorts of things that you can add to a scene in order to, uh, you know, create some prop style combat. And that, uh, I think, will get people excited, right? It's like, uh, there's a bunch of barrels over there and there's a green leaky thing. That's probably all you need to uh, suck your players to go in and, and uh, decide to engage in this combat. In you know, introduce a question. Or they or they have to play keep away with an artifact, right? If, yeah. if any of the bad Rakshasas ever touch this thing, it goes right to Rakshasa hell. And so... One player has always got to be thinking, I've got to throw the the orb to another player instead of fight because the Rakshasas are coming. And by throwing the orb, you know, you, you're channelizing the fight. You're moving the Rakshasas around the battlefield, you know, something like that. Uh, again, you can see that happening, you know, in every, you know, uh, weekend in sports. And you can see it even, you know, in some action bits in a movie where they've also got something that they have to protect, be it a baby or an orb or some other thing. And so it's not just stabby stabby. There's also some degree of, you know, protecty protecty, which is another nice riff. Right. Uh, well, I think we've got all sorts of uh, ways now to make sure that your marquee fights are unskippable. And uh, perhaps as far as your skippable fights uh, are concerned, don't do those ones. Yes. <laughs> don't do that. As the man says. <laughs> and uh, on that note, it's time for uh, us to uh, head toward uh, both a commercial and a segment that you won't want to skip. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. 
It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit a vampire. Yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries. For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to uh, enter the world of architecture for the architecture hut. And this time around, the uh, hut isn't even a skyscraper. It is a big old wheel, a cantilevered observation wheel, as it were, because beloved Patreon Becker, Philip Masters, wants to know the mystical symbolism of the London Eye. And Ken, we have to thank Phil for giving us a layup, because Mm -hmm. when we're talking about ezogeography, and the assignment is find something in London that is weird and has long history toward it. We're, we're sitting pretty here. Yeah. Uh, now, I have to confess, with the London Eye, I never think of it as the London Eye. In fact, I have sort of a Mandela effect where I think there's some other big, more Sauron-like tower that is the London Eye. And then you when think I that remember, there's like a red lidless eye that opens on top of the gherkin and um, yeah. uh, blasts across the Isle of Dogs? Exactly. And then, it's oh, it's the it's the big old Ferris wheel. Yeah. Or, you know, more precisely, again, a cantilevered observation wheel. It's no mere Ferris wheel. And it was originally the, the tallest such wheel in the world, but there are now taller ones. Mm-hmm. But it's still the tallest cantilevered one, meaning that it only has a support on one side. And right. I know... It's a big concern of everybody, whether they're giant wheels or cantilevered or not. I know that that often comes up. I mean, as the city that literally invented the Ferris wheel, you kids have fun. That's what I say. But the London Eye is, you know, it's big. It's uh, it's eye catching, dare I say. Uh, I think we all remember the London Eye not working on uh, Y2K Day. That was good fun. You know, Tony Blair comes down and ceremonially opens it on the 31st of December. And it sort of goes around two things and stops. That was good fun. We all had a good laugh at Britain to close out a millennium of laughing at Britain and beginning a new millennium of laughing at Britain. By goodness. Um, So the London Eye giant Ferris wheel, as we've indicated, opened, and I put that in quote marks, on December 31st, 1999, actually opened on March the 8th of 2000. It was owned and operated by the Tussauds Group. And you'd think the Wax Museum people? Yes, the Wax Museum people. For some reason, the Tussauds group had the kind of player money to build a giant Ferris wheel in the middle of London. Now, they had to share it with British Airways and with the architectural firm. 
but they slowly bought those partners out. And then they themselves were bought uh, by a company named Merlin Entertainments <laughs> on the nose names. We've <laughs> talked about this before, uh, real estate holdings in 2007 for, for guess how much money was the Tussauds group worth? The wax museum people were worth. $1.9 billion with a B dollars. There's a lot of compound interest in being in the wax uh, figure business. Apparently, yeah, since 1770 or whatever. Yeah. And then uh, Merlin Entertainments, as is the way in this bigger fish to bite them era, got itself gobbled up by a company called Kirk B, which is the investment arm of the family that owns Lego. Uh, basically, Merlin Entertainments was noodling around and they bought Legoland briefly and that attracted the eye. Speaking of eyes that gaze at you, this would be the eye of a little Lego meeple. And um, uh, it swiveled its little head around and they bought the Tussauds Group slash Merlin Entertainments. And so now it's owned by the Lego people, but not by Lego, by the Lego people in their own yellow personal claw. So that's sort of the backstory. We have Merlin, we have Lego people, all manner of possibilities. I think we can make this a little bit of a tutorial. Uh, when you have a thing that is a wheel, cantilevered or not, the instant you need to think, you need to think numbers because we're talking literally uh, magical geometry here. So it's 443 feet tall or 135 meters uh, for the kids, 394 feet uh, or 120 meters in diameter. So when you uh, open up your Sefer Sephiroth, your Kabbalah books, and you find that 443 is the number of Goliath. So that's a sign. Ooh, a giant. Um, Bethel, which is uh, a sacred temple, and the words a virgin or a city. So we're already beginning to get an image of the sort of uh, magic you're conjuring up. 135, the meters, that's the number of Otilia, who is a giant of Saturnian aspect encountered by Crowley. So Crowley's good for something, at least. He's given us something to do with 135. Otherwise, we would have had to play uh, fancy games with the Kabbalah. The um, uh, diameter of the wheel, 394 feet. Uh, 394 is the uh, Hebrew word for table. And uh, 197, which is the radius, obviously, in feet, is El Elyon, the supreme god. And then 120 for your meters is master or decree. So you can see that these are the tablets of the law is represented by the actual wheel and its height off the ground indicates it's a giant that will dominate the city in um, uh, it's a, ideally a Saturnian aspect, but also a, a sacral power. It, it's focusing divine energies. Uh, there's 32 capsules that you ride around in because there's 33, but they skip number 13. Uh, 32 is 10 Sephiroth plus the 22 pads between the Sephiroth. So again, you have a complete, Kabbalistic entity. And of course, once you've got a complete entity from one to 32, it turns because it's a giant wheel. It's the wheel of fortune for God's sake, a la the tarot deck. And uh, finally, it's a giant eye, which again, the eye of God uh, looking down over the city uh, is only the first of many possible symbolisms that a giant eye has. And because the eye is the name they picked for it, that implies that that's something that they're trying to uh, both focus your attention on and also focus the attention of Ortilia or whoever, whatever magical uh, spirit that they're attempting to summon. And I should mention that the 8th of March by the Julian calendar is the ritual of Feralia, which is a day to appease the angry dead. So the wheel goes up, it stops working, it dies ceremonially, and then wakes up on uh, the 8th of March on Feralia. So the wheel has turned down into the land of the dead and then turned back out. Uh, so 
it definitely gets that necromantic energy by uh, embarrassingly having not worked for uh, two and a half months. So that is uh, what I would say are your sort of standard due diligence, occult mystical significance that you want to do with any sort of thing. Uh, you do your Kabbalah, you do your, your days, and then you look for your number symbolism. And then the fact that it's a giant wheel and a giant eye. Uh, the site itself is in Lambeth. Uh, nothing particularly magic about Lambeth. It used to be the site of the Skylon and Dome of Discovery, which is like uh, when Britain heard about the Trilon and Perisphere, they said, well, we could do that for it's Britain the days. Britain of and uh, Yep. But uh, because it was Britain, their dome was a big flat dome, not a cool sphere. And their Skylon didn't touch the ground. It was held up by ropes. So a, a flat dome? They, they come in flat? A flat dome. Yeah. So it's it's like if you think of the Astrodome, it's that kind of thing. Just a okay. big dish, like a flying saucer that you would set down, not a big kicking sphere like we have. Oh, so the dome of discovery, the first thing you discover is it's not a dome. It's sort of a, a, a flat, it's made of aluminum. So it's, it's uh, well, you know, Festival of Britain, everybody, 1951. The poor kids had been bombed flat by the Nazis. They barely had any. They're just, oh, they're putting on a show. Good for them. They've saved the team center. Before that, it was the government of India stores building from 1862 to 1945. This was where the British government would store things that the government of India had bought in Britain. And eventually people said, why isn't the government of India buying them in, in India, which in theory we own, and that would make it less expensive. And then the British government said, uh, never mind. <laughs> there's, there's cronies. There's, yes. there's cronies to <laughs> like, be paid off. What sort of moon calf are you? I don't think if you understood why we have a colony, it's to make people in London rich, not to make people in India rich. Pay attention. Before that, it was uh, warehouses at a place called Narrow Wall. And before that, it was it was swamp. It was marshland. But there was a Roman boat that was dug up on the site. So at some level, beneath the eye, beneath the giant, there is a boat. And of course, if you've got a buried boat, what is that but the boat that goes into the land of the dead, once more tying us into the wheel having turned through the land of the dead in January and February of 2000. So I feel like, Robin, you know, my work, not to say that it was work, but it was, is done here. Well, Ken, your work may be done, but our work is just beginning because our job now is to turn this into a story idea or at least an explanation of what's going on or a description of its effect. And so if you've got a giant eye gazing at us from the land of the dead, conveying information about the living to the land of the dead, the question is, who is doing this and why? And how do our heroes go about uh, stopping it or at least dealing with it? If it began uh, with Tony Blair being ritually humiliated with a capital R on ritually, mm -hmm. my first idea is, first of all, this was designed to magically kill Tony Blair uh, and his prospects and we eventually we <laughs> saw that happen and in fact didn't just kill tony blair it killed the entire labor party so something associated with uh, making people rich and the fruits of empire suggests that uh, somebody uh, who wanted rich people to keep on having lots of money uh, possibly created this as a uh, a great uh, uh, weapon against the left and that uh, the accrual of fortunes to the rich uh, which has uh, definitely become uh, London's main industry of uh, bringing your money. Uh, we're not going to look at it too carefully, and we might give you a peerage uh, to boot. Uh, it's definitely something that has accelerated with the progress of a wheel ever since then. So I, I think, Ken, I sense the presence 
of sorcerous fat cats behind this whole uh, project. I think that you can't rule out the sorcerous fat cats. The various financial gamery around owning the eye indicates that even if it did not begin as sorcerous fat cats, even if it began as Tony Blair ritually dying so that he could be reborn in the spring and lead uh, labor to uh, record-setting victories in elections, which is what happened. But then you'll note he gets bumped out the same year that Merlin Entertainments buys the wheel. So Merlin, and we don't know that he's representing the actual Merlin. He may be representing people who say that they're Merlin, but maybe it's real honest-to-God Merlin is mad at Tony Blair for some reason and uh, conspires with the Fat Cats to throw him out and uh, switch the wheel's ownership so that they can tune it or spin it differently or go back and take the death of Tony Blair that they've mystically drawn up in one of those political death, not the actual death. He lives a long and happy life, but the uh, political death of Tony Blair that they've conjured up in one of those capsules. And then they unleash it. They open up the genie bottle in 2007 when they buy it. So the, I guess the question is, what do the Lego people want? What do the, the, the weird, mysterious, always smiling Danes want with their yellow heads since 2019? What's, what, what's that up to? Is that because 2019 again is another, uh, a ramping home of the conservative party. But the question is, why would the Danes not want the regular, the, the, the Merlin conservatives to own it? What's going on? Is there a war amongst mystical fat cats? Is this the, the Danes? Is this Odin's eye now? Right. Because we have an, a giant of Saturnian aspect. That's Otilia. His name begins with an O. Uh, he's a giant. He's a god. Could this be that Odin has made, has made a play with his one magic eye that uh, he uses to see the future? Right. Because, of course, uh, you know, the Danes used to run the joint. That's why it was called the Dane Law. Mm -hmm. And so they may want it back. And so by uh, buying the... Uh, the wheel that may be just basically a way of, uh, you know, putting just a, a small but sharp little brick on the floor for Merlin to step on mm -hmm. and to take the power away. But there's been, I think, another great geo-architectural esoteric development, and that is the, the shard, mm -hmm. uh, which in 2013 eclipses the wheel as the highest observation point in London. So now the, there's an observation deck on the 72nd uh, floor of the shard that is now taller than the wheel. B brief and pause to laugh at the idea of 72 floors being tall. But anyway, go on. Uh, well, it, uh, maybe there's some of them are very tall floors. It's tall uh, in London. I mean, it's, it's London tall, <laughs> like being Cleveland hot. Right. But at any rate, so you've got that coming to effect. Uh, the very fact that it's named the shard has all sorts of uh, geomantic uh, implications that it's mm -hmm. a, a dagger into the uh, heart of the previous geomancy of, of the city. So you or into the, the eye, you know, yeah. Right. A shard in the eye. You don't want that. And I think also for further investigation, there's the question of the tulip, which was just proposed as another uh, gigantic, weird axis mundi. Uh, obviously, that's the, the plant elementals trying to get in on the game. But uh, this was canceled uh, by the current Tory government because uh, I think they certainly, I'm sure, think that uh, all of the geomancy of the city is currently going their way. And the last thing they would like is a giant symbol of life and regeneration and uh, getting the Dutch. in there. Yes. <laughs> and the Dutch, uh, who were the, the fat cats of a, a previous uh, century. Clearly there's a, a, you know, a contemporary architectural battle of Britain that is ongoing to control that skyline and uh, all of the uh, beautiful money that is uh, swirling around 
uh, through all the back corridors and back channels. And uh, as adventurers, as sorcerous adventurers, I'm sure you could be hired by any number of shadowy organizations. And, you know, you've got to do your due diligence and find out which mysterious group of fat cats you're fighting for and whether it's the less evil ones. But uh, definitely your, you know, your uh, astral sky battles are fought on a battleground that is all of these uh, buildings competing to uh, suck in all of the economic energy that's uh, headed toward the city. And and on practical levels, uh, maybe you can't do your magic while the eye is turning, while the eye is open, or you'll be seen by Odin or uh, Mystical Fat Cats or whoever else has a tap into the eye by now. So you can only stay off the radar of the bad guys by doing magic out of the sight of the eye. And if you do anything during the time of the eye, then you've revealed yourself. And of course the story is going to ineluctably force you to do magic, not just while the eye is open, but probably in Lambeth while the eye is open. So you're just literally standing right there at the plane of Dol Golder or whatever the hell the plane is called. Don't at me, Tolkien people. And, and, you know, right there with the lidless eye of Odin or uh, Othelion or whatever his name is now gazing at you. You don't like that. You don't like a gaze. Right. Because if there's anything we know about the dead uh, in whatever land they're at, whether it's the Western lands or uh, Valhalla, is they like gold. They like loot. And mm-hmm. so they're undoubtedly trying to suck all of that uh, wealth uh, from the land of the living to, uh, to the land of the dead. Uh, perhaps giving you a reason to go and have an exciting F-20 encounter that you won't want to skip. But now that we're connecting our previous segments, it's time to get out of this one and see what waits on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep the evil architectural eye from withering this podcast by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Nate Merritt! James Candelino! Urs Blumentritt! Ben Vincent! And Chad Ward! The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, and the sensation of whatever that is under our feet as we walk to the center seats 
welcome us once more into the cinema hut. And today in the cinema hut, there's, oh, there's an angry dwarf and maybe a mountain. And I think that <laughs> there's that woman and she's crying, but no, she's turned into a bug. Oh, no, it was just a stupid dream. Never mind. Skip it. Robin is mad, I believe we can say, at dream sequences. And since everybody uses dream sequences, not just garb directors, but very, very arty ones indeed, we have to say, what's the what with dream sequences? And is there ever a time to use them as opposed to to make fun of dream sequences, which is a perfectly good time to use them? Or the shorter version, Robin, how dare you say that about David Lynch? <laughs> well, uh, that brings us to the uh, thing that we're going to have to set aside, uh, which is there is the subgenre of film, the dream film, that that's the whole point is that it's about a character who's in an existential mystery and has been trapped in dreams. And so your eyes wide shut, your uh, last night in Soho, Inland Empire of uh, David Lynch's one is the one that is all about the feeling of being trapped in a dream. If that's the whole point, if the whole film is a dream sequence, I'm not mad at you. That's the deal. But as you've pointed out, it is a universal story crutch to suddenly have a, a sequence, even worse, if uh, it is not signaled as a dream, which it almost never is, that you think it's part of the narrative and then it's revealed to be not. That's like a cheat on top of a cheat. I noticed this watching films at TIFF this year, is that about every other one had a dream sequence in it. And in almost every case possibly every case, it is a completely gratuitous move to try and get a jolt or have an interesting thing happen in an uninteresting part of your narrative or to have a break in the visual monotony of your film or to introduce some heavy-handed symbolism. Has there ever been, Ken, a dream sequence where the symbolism was not heavy-handed? <laughs> well, I mean, in many cases, that's the best part. I mean, for example, to uh, defend yet another dream sequence, the dream sequences in Spellbound are great. They're designed by Salvador Dali. Right. The movie is amazing, and they work like a charm. Yes, but also they are also, Spellbound is also a dream film, right? That's the concept of the film. So it's just thrown into some other movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, yeah. Our dream sequences are on the nose because that is their job in a script is to convey some fact or emotional state that the script is too reluctant or weak, depending on if you want to be mean, uh, to convey in some other way. Right. I mean, the whole reason you have a character dream about the murder is because you couldn't figure out a good way to have the character think about the murder in an interesting way. So you have to have them dream about it, right? Right. And and that is the whole problem is it's covering up a, a flaw in the script that you've got a big uninteresting stretch, that your film is visually monotonous, that your realism has bored even you, the director of your <laughs> naturalistic film, and is almost always gratuitous, that it's an easy solve to a deeper structural problem. And is often just thrown in, you know, as gratuitous emotional beats that don't really come out of anything and don't really go anywhere, right? That if you're, if the character is having a dream about her conflict with her mother, that's just a substitute for the scene where she has a real conflict with the mother, but you can't do that yet because it would ruin your story. So as a writer, the question is, if you are approaching a, a scene and you solve it by putting in a dream sequence, you are covering up a weakness in your storyline. So it's a cheap trick. 
It's obvious. And the other thing about it is that dream sequences are never like real dreams. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, a realistic dream is, you know, the character wakes up having dreamt that they were stuck in an airport or, you know, that they couldn't find the bathroom or, and, and occasionally I, I think I have one dream sequence in all of my novels and it is a realistic, you know, attempts to realistically draw what a dream is really like. We all dream a lot. I, I certainly do. I have vivid dreams. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's a real part of life, but movie and often fictional dream sequences, you know, it's like, have you never had a dream or heard another person describe a dream? Because what you're depicting is not at all what dreams look or sound or uh, behave like. They're never, you know, blatantly symbolic in that way. Uh, they're uh, rarely do you, while dreaming, do you think, oh, this is strange, misty, surreal landscape. You know, usually it's an imaginary banal setting that you're mm -hmm. uh, stuck in. It's, you know, a weird rewritten version of your apartment or an airport, but it's not misty and weird. Uh, the film Living in Oblivion does a great send up of dream sequences. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's one of the best things in a remarkably underrated movie. It, basically, it's a movie that is making fun of indie filmmaking in the absolute golden age of indie filmmaking. It's Peter Dinklage, right? That plays yes. the, the little person who's angry that he's only hired because of the dream sequence in the movie and spends a beautiful rant tearing into the whole notion of dream sequences. Yes. And, and the great line is I'm a dwarf and even I don't dream about dwarves. <laughs> right, yeah. Once you've seen living in oblivion, you do not watch a dream sequence without one hand on your revolver to paraphrase Goring, but <laughs> we'll never paraphrase Goring again. But anyway, yeah, it's I mean, just a dream you're having. Th there's, um, there's a lot of things where you could argue, for example, there's a, a magnificent dream sequence in big Lebowski is big Lebowski, a movie about dreams. Is it not a movie about dreams? I, I, I feel like there's some middle ground that, that in our living in oblivion anger, we are overlooking uh, over and above the fact that, say, Mulholland Drive is full of dream sequences. You know, it's also a movie about dreams, but there's dream sequences in Twin Peaks that even have a dwarf and they're terrific. And so right. what, what's going on with this? Well, we may, you know, there may be an exception of uh, conked on the head sequences because <laughs> uh, Big Lebowski's sequence, of course, happens when he's been knocked unconscious. So he's not dreaming. It's more of a hallucination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. We'd have to do a study of our conked on the head hallucinatory sequences somehow better and historically better <laughs> standard dream sequences. For one thing, you're always signaled that you know that you're in well, it's not you're not you don't watch Big Lebowski and go, is this happening? Is it really <laughs> floating through a bowling alley. But part of that is it's, those are send ups of dream sequences. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's an awareness there, but uh, yeah, I don't know. We'd have to go back and go to the tape and see if, uh, but, but you know, the character has been cocked on the head and this is part of their journey to uh, waking up. And it may be, uh, there may be a whole other uh, cinematic language between being cocked and being uh, having a dream. And, I, and other dream sequences, again, to briefly play devil's advocate or Morpheus advocate, is that they're there to add a different thematic. It's like a color uh, it's accent wall in a room, right? The room itself is not red. The room is taupe or brown or whatever. But there's a red wall that gets you thinking and makes the browns pop. And so, for example, a dream sequence can do that by adding a note of color or theatricality to a otherwise intended to be realistic movie to 
let you know that, oh, there's stuff going on beneath the surface of this realistic movie. And if it's a good sequence in and of itself, as opposed to a, a sort of a meandering, uh, yeah, we are, we already know that type, uh, patter, uh, I feel like it can be a valuable add to the film. So the dream sequence that opens Bring It On is not necessary for Bring It On, except it adds another great cheerleader number. And then it also, lets us know really fast that as together as Kirsten Dunst looks in the movie, she's actually not together. And that then, you know, that lets you sort of empathize with who on the surface does not look like a very sympathetic character because we've already been invited into her trauma. And we established that at the, at the opening at the jump. Right. So I think you, you convinced me to, to make two carve outs. One conked on the head. To musical sequence, musical which explains sequence. why Big Lebowski is the best one because it's a conked on the head and musical, musical sequence. sequence. Exactly. Yes. The best kind of dream sequence. Well, I, I'm glad that we've reached a synthesis here, uh, Ken. <laughs> and uh, before we get conked on the head and wind up in a Kenny Rogers song, it's time for us to uh, flee to the final segment. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. And this time around, estimable Patreon backer BT asks, In 1793, Thomas Jefferson asked his French friends for help bringing the metric system to America. And they duly dispatched Joseph Dombey to bring a kilogram standard to the new nation. What crisis did Ken avoid by delivering Dombey into the hands of pirates? And this is a moment where I have to step in and remind everybody yet again, we've, we've discussed this, people. This is not Ken's murder hunt. <laughs> Ken does not get people killed. He does not hand them over to pirates. You know, that the biggest danger Ken poses in the timeline is to livers, and he always sacrifices his own liver along with whatever historical figure he's visiting. So 
I'm explaining that, Ken, so that you don't have to yet again. So why did you deliver Dombey into the hands of pirates? I didn't know that he had a heart condition. All right, fine. Didn't do my research. Didn't look it up. But yes, you know, before he visited the pirates, he was fine. He, he lived a long, happy... Well, actually, he was executed by the French government. Uh, because the thing about Joseph Dombey that you need to know, he's a brilliant botanist. He's an avid collector, a deep scholar of intense learning, a gifted engineer. He is also the most annoying person in the 1790s, I think. <laughs> he. This is the pattern of Joseph Dombey. He goes off to somewhere, usually South America, starts collecting plants. Everyone's signed off. They're like, yeah, yeah, come collect plants. This is wonderful. Then he comes to the port and he says, I'm leaving with all the plants. And everyone says, ah, no, you're not. We hate you now. And it's like, you know, the first time you think, well, all right, the Spanish are jerks. And then he goes to Chile. He fixes the mercury mines for them. Then he sails away from Chile with more plants. And when he, uh, you know, gets on the, on the shore, you assume he says, pack up all my plants and send them to France, my good man. And the customs guy says, ah, we're not doing that. We're going to put them in a box and put you in a different smaller box. So he keeps getting arrested even after doing all this great stuff. And so at some point, either he's a spy, uh, which seems unlikely, or he's just annoying. And I feel like the, the thing we need to keep in mind as we move forward on Joseph Dombey's career and what would have happened is he's super, super annoying. So in fact, the, the French, it's not that the French didn't want America to adopt the metric system. It's that they wanted Dombey out of their hair yet again. When, when Thomas Jefferson is, is, uh, in Paris and saying, Hey, uh, who should we send back to America to carry the very important kilometer pound? And everyone looks around and they say, how about Dombey? And Thomas Jefferson's like, yes, that would rule. <laughs> and uh, off he goes because Thomas Jefferson doesn't want to be in America. He wants to be in France because it's cool. So that is the story of Joseph Dombey. That's the situation. So when, again, the, the pirates uh, or privateers, I should say, technically, they had a letter of mark. Uh, they were British privateers. Yes. And this was legalized crime. Uh-huh. Uh, when they hijack his ship and they climb onto the ship. They see a, it's a Spanish ship and everyone's standing around being Spanish. And there's one guy who's dressed in a Spanish sailor suit, speaking terrible Spanish in a French accent and no doubt being a giant jerk to them. They're like, oh, this guy. And that's why they grabbed him is because he just was so annoying. So anyway, uh, they grab him. They grab the, 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 the kilogram pound. They grab the meter stick. And then they, they realize that they've got something literally worthless and they uh, send it to America anyway. So it gets to America. It's owned by a lovely family named the Endicotts. They keep it in the back room, which is where you should keep your kilogram pound. And uh, that's the end of that story. Now, before we get into the alternate part of this, I want to say that this is not uh, people for whatever reason. And, you know, Robin, I love you. I love all foreigners. But shut up about the damn metric system, all right? <laughs> Let, put a man on the moon and complain to me about the metric system next time. We've had metric system longer than you've had the metric system. A guy named Ferdinand Hassler, a Swiss uh, surveyor, brought a meter bar right from France to America in 1805, used it to survey all the customs houses, became head of the uh, of what became the geodetic survey. Basically, it's the reason the meter is used in geodesy is because of this great Swiss-American. Uh, becomes the head of the Bureau of Weights and Measures. 
An American named C.S. Pierce, who is later uh, goes on to become one of the great philosophers of the 19th and 20th century, develops the first measurement of the meter by light waves as opposed to arbitrary nonsense someone made up in France, which is what it was up until then. Then two more Americans, Michelson and Morley, figure out how to actually do the measurement so that it works. It takes the rest of Europe, by the way, 60 more years to say, yeah, we probably should have measured by light waves, not by some farcical survey of the equation or the Paris Meridian. So, but me no buts. We've had the metric system in America since 1805. We've used it where we want. We haven't used it where we don't want. It's this all or nothing nonsense that uh, gets up our noses when you people are trying to say, but Celsius, it's the best. And we were like, yeah, that's right. Zero to 100 should be, it's perfectly pleasant outside to I'm dead. That, that's dumb. Right. And, and although the segment teaser at the beginning of the episode says, uh, you know, keeping America imperial. In fact, while Jefferson was trying to arrange this, the issue was not that America did not have the metric system, but that it had a whole bunch of competing yeah. systems because bunch of different states. Mm-hmm. And so there was no uh, universal measure. And I guess any universal measure would have done. And if you were partying it up in France, it makes sense that it would they would try and make the metric system uh, happen. So given that, given can all of your objections to uh, making America fully metric as opposed to situationally uh, metric is the alternate reality where that happens even possible, let alone uh, desirable to uh, people who still think according to the U.S. measure system? Um, it's not possible, but I will say that Fern- Ferdinand Hassler, one of the things he did do was start standardizing the yard to his meter stick. So that's a, another ups to Ferdinand Hassler. But the big thing that Dombey would have done with his kilogram pound and his meter stick and his stupid, annoying attitude is he gets everyone head up. Let's say Congress passes the metric system because it's all science And then what happens? Everyone in America it starts getting angry that they have to change all their yards and furlongs and everything. And who do they get angry at, Robin? They get angry at the hated French. And we shouldn't be hating the hated French. The French are our friends. They're the most darling of Europeans. They helped us out when we were low. We shouldn't have been angry at the French. And if you'll remember, we did a segment, a whole segment on stopping a war with France under John Adams, who I will point out is just six years after this metrification. Now, if you imagine how well Americans in the 1970s enjoyed the metric system, think back to how Americans in the 1790s would have enjoyed the metric system. And the answer is not at all. And that would have been the little pebble in the avalanche that gets Americans saying, you know what? The heck with the French, the heck with their ships and their bribery and their stupid metric system. And uh, that would have turned the quasi war into the actual war. And I believe we've covered the reason that that was bad in that segment. So it's not that we become metric. We don't become metric. We just become mad at the French, which we shouldn't have been. And that is the reason that annoying Joseph Dombey got turned over to privateers by someone who made sure that Joseph Dombey had a hangover on the day he was arrested by the privateers so that he was super annoying and would be dragged off to Montserrat, where I thought he would live in tropic splendor with some pirates and have a good time. But of course, he's Joseph Dombey. He has to ruin that by dying as well. So, and I think basically, you know, as we've talked about on the show that you are able to rectify things in the time stream that are, you know, up to chance or up to the decision of an individual person, but that broad historical social forces 
you know, you can't drink those under the table. And, you know, you American uh, recalcitrance is something that you would not remove from the time stream, even if you knew how to do it. And you can't. Right. But you're correct. I also would not see American recalcitrance <laughs> previously yes. cited so, in that very sentence. <laughs> exactly. So uh, are you recalcitrant enough not to uh, to deny everyone a scenario hook from this? Well, I, th- I, I feel like the the notion that there are uh, this is not real science, by the way, this is ridiculous magic stuff, but I feel like the act of attempting to define the world that the uh, Lavoisier and those boys did when they came up with the metric system and the act of those kilogram pounds. And I am keeping calling them kilogram pounds on purpose because it amuses me. (laughs) The notion that these individual weights and measures are somehow the magic new weights and measures argues to me that there is a metrication of magic going on as well. And that these kilogram pounds are also, if you want to think about them as talismans or elder signs or, or feng shui uh, magnets or something so that they, when they are, you know, ensconced in, you know, a, a national capital or a big important city, they allow the metric, uh, the metromancers, I guess, to uh, have their way. And that the, if you look at the actual spread of these bars and you say, oh, this one is made out of iron, but this one is made out of a bimetal compound. And of course, they did that because iron expands and shrinks with heat and with uh, pressure. And that's why it's a terrible thing to make your beater stick out of. But each one of those has a different alchemical resonance. And so you could sort of map it out. Um, I've, I've often actually thought of doing a campaign in which the Bureau of Weights and Measures is the secret place that all the magic happens. Uh, there's another book that I forget who it's by. I want to say it's by Michael Curlin, but it might, might not be. Or, or it might be by uh, Afrim Davidson. It's by someone very good. Well, it's uh, standby people for the Goodreads list where right, you will yeah. resolve that question. In which the um, uh, the Bureau of Weights and Measures is the is the headquarters of the time travel division because they, they also set time and how better to set it than by traveling around and, and fixing things. So basically changing the U.S. to metric is the one mission that the Time Incorporated will not perform and, in fact, throws up a uh, smokescreen with an amusing rant because that would give away the game, mm-hmm. right? That would reveal them as, as who they really are. Right. The Bureau of Weights and Measures. Yes. Right. So, like I said, that's not real. That's nonsense. That's magic talk. It's got nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not possibly true at all. Well, since we've finished up the podcast unusually with something that isn't true, I think we'd better you know, hang our heads in in shame and uh, slink out of here. But we'll be back having unlearned all of our lessons uh, for another episode a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Seppel. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from falling into the hands of pirates alongside such kilogramophilic backers as Dan Simons, Mark Kevin Hall, Michael Manival, Neil Dalton, and Phil Bailey. Gift your favorite co-listener with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. With such cozy designs as Excuse Me While I Nap This Out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>